Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. And I'm going to start with a seemingly random question for you. What is your favorite building in the world? We, we often talk about our favorite aspects of God's creation in nature. But what is your favorite man-made structure? Perhaps it's one of the famous ancient structures like the Roman Colosseum or the Parthenon or the Egyptian pyramids or the ancient Incan city, Machu Picchu. Maybe you're fascinated more by modern or somewhat modern buildings like the Opera House in Sydney, the tallest tower in the world in Dubai. Maybe it's One World Trade Center in lower Manhattan. Or perhaps for more nostalgic reasons, maybe your favorite building in the world is your childhood home. Well, those structures, along with every other building in the world today, were designed by men and women. Using God-given gifts, they designed it. What if I told you that in the history of the world, there was only one man-made structure that was designed by God himself. And that that structure could fit in the space of this room that I am preaching in right now. I'm sure you're riveted. You're just on the edge of your couch at this moment. And I hope so, because we are going to dig into this divinely designed piece of architecture this morning, the tabernacle beginning in Exodus 25. But to quickly catch you up on what has happened since we left things last week in the middle of Exodus chapter 24, after God and Israel confirmed their covenant together at Mount Sinai, setting the pattern for what worship ought to look like, now God summons Moses back up the mountain once again in order to give him the tablets of stone that contain the law which God had written himself. And Moses goes up, and the glory of the Lord descends upon the mountain where Moses waits for six days. And on the seventh day, Moses enters into the cloud where he will be for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's see what he tells him. Exodus chapter 25, we'll read verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onks, stones, and, and stones for setting for the ephod, and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its, of its furniture, so you shall make it. These next several chapters reveal what God tells Moses over the span of 40 days and 40 nights. 
And while we might be prone to get bored starting at this point in the book of Exodus for the next several chapters, kind of getting lost in all the details, what we see emerge from this text are stories that God is telling through the detailed instruction of this structure. There's three stories we're going to hit this morning. First, the story of divine presence. Back in chapter 24, again, God provided Israel a picture of what worship looks like. We saw that last week. And now in chapter 25, he begins to provide a picture of where this worship will occur for Israel. Quote, in a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's the purpose of this structure, of this big tent, what will eventually be revealed to be the tabernacle. A tent where God would dwell. And this is in itself the fulfillment of a promise that that the transcendent God, the creator of all things, is not an absent deity. He is a very present father to his people. And like a good father, he's not saying to his children, man, you got to find me. You got to come impress me. You need to come where I am. You need to go get on a journey, like it's this cosmic game of hide-and-seek. I mean, just as an aside, isn't that the way many people talk about God today? That I need to find Him. Maybe we are even guilty of saying this to others, that like, man, you need to find God. And this idea that, man, He's dodged me, but I'm going to find Him, and I'm going to figure out the secret, and I'm going to get to where He is. And so we perform in our life, in this search, in this journey, to find God based on our works and performance. And God says, no, no. I'm not a distant God who is bothered by and hiding from his people. And I will come to you. I will come and get you out of Egypt. And then I will come and dwell right in the center of your camp. And the way he will do that at this point is through the tabernacle. If you are familiar with the rest of the book of Exodus, we just started chapter 25. Chapters 25 through 30 contain detailed instructions to build the tabernacle. And then in chapters 35 through 40, which bring you to the end, contain the actual building of the tabernacle. And so there's a lot of repetition, and we'll see why. But for now, just bottom line, 12 chapters in the book, 25 to 30, and then 35 to 40, 30% of the entire book is committed to just detailed instruction of the building of the tabernacle. It shows its importance, and it's important because it's the fulfillment of a promise. That God freed Israel from slavery so that he may dwell amongst them and they may worship him. Both of which are fulfilled in the tabernacle. It's a promise that says God is near and he never forgets his people. And in line with God's design, both literally and figuratively, He chooses to use the contributions of these people to make it happen, right? Speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. 
So hear this. Um, God did not need the contributions of Israel. He is allowing them to play a part in this. This is not him going to Moses at the top of the mountain and being like, hey, Moses, you know what? I would really like to build something. I got some great ideas, but I need some help. I need you to have people to, to give to this. God needs no help. It is for the good of the people and for the hearts of the people that he allows them to contribute. Their sacrificial offerings were for their good and joy, not his. And you know how I know this? You know know why I know this? Here's why. He says this to Moses. Just let each person decide in their heart what is right to give. But then he immediately tells Moses what he will get. And then for five chapters, he will give the detailed instruction because he already knows all that will come in and all the material he will have. But in his sovereign design, he empowers the people to search their own hearts and give them the opportunity to take ownership over their own contributions. Right? I mean, that's just like, that's leadership 101, right? Like, that's good leadership. Not being a dictator, but a leader. Not controlling people, but empowering them. And do you remember how they got all these possessions in the first place? After the 10th plague, when Pharaoh tells them to get out of Egypt in the middle of the night, we read in Exodus 12, 35-36, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. How did they get all these possessions in the first place? God gave them favor. It wasn't earned by them. It was given by the Egyptians because of God's sovereign grace. So their contributions now to this tabernacle, as each feels led in their own heart, is giving to God a portion of what had already been given to them. And this is the kingdom mindset of generosity amongst the people of God. It is our joy to give because everything we have has been given to us by the Lord in the first place. None of us, hear me, none of us are owners of anything in this world. We are all stewards of God's possessions. Everything is his. And in his goodness to us, we have everything that we have. It's all grace. So just be careful with the mentality of hearing that and just in your own mind and heart, kind of pushing against that. Be like, no, 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 I worked for what I had. I worked hard for this. I earned every penny. God didn't do that. I did that. In fact, he tried to stack the odds against me, but I overcame. Brother or sister, everything we have is a gift from God. Either inherited or worked for with the abilities and under the circumstances that he sovereignly oversaw and ruled over.
And so in generosity, we are giving to expand his kingdom for his glory out of the abundance of what we have already been given. This is the joy of giving. That God has wired us, has made us to give of ourselves to others. That we are most alive when we are being used by God to bless others. With our treasure, with our talent, with our time, that is the way to live. And I hope that you view generosity in this way. It's God's gift to you. It's the opportunity to play a part. The announcement of this divinely designed building is a story of God's of divine presence. Let's keep going. I'm going to read verses 10 through 16. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on its molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Second story is the story of personal redemption. Again, through all these chapters, do not get lost in the details. Uh, details matter, but they matter here in so much that they tell a story as a whole. That the instructions for building the tabernacle tell the story of personal redemption. For Israel, this is how to worship and where to worship. Because of this tabernacle, they are redeemed. They are in a relationship with God through a sacrificial system. But for us today in the church, on this side of the cross, and on this side of the empty tomb, we know where this is headed. The tabernacle fulfilled the promise to Israel, but partially. The complete fulfillment of God dwelling with His people is more fully realized later. How? Rather than just tell you, let me show you. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. That word dwelt in verse 14 is the Greek word for tabernacle. Jesus is God's dwelling place in the flesh. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. And so now we, from our perspective, get to look back on these chapters and specifically six aspects of the tabernacle structure and see how each one of them tell the story of Jesus. All right, man, I just, man, this is going to be fun and we're going to be moving fast. But number one, the Ark of the Covenant. And given the instructions for the structure, God begins with the most important aspect of the tabernacle. Indeed, the most important piece of furniture in the history of the world. 
And we'll, we'll cover this briefly later, but the general overview of this tabernacle is you had an outdoor court and then two indoor sections marked off by curtains. You had the outer room and the inner room, known also as the holy place and the most holy place. And this piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, would be placed inside the most holy place. Just as an aside, there is no linguistic connection in the Hebrew between this ark and Noah's ark. So just want to clear that up, get that out of your mind. But this ark is just a small, really simple, rectangular box, about three feet by four feet. But the entire thing is covered in gold. And it has poles attached to it that would never be removed that would be used to transport the ark whenever the tent would have to go up and down as the people of God went through the wilderness. And the reason the poles couldn't be removed is that the ark was at the very center of God's presence within the tabernacle. And if any man touched the ark, they would die. So why is God starting here? Why is God starting with this little piece of furniture to describe to Moses? What's it for? Let's keep going, verses 17 to 22. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay. So, Fire up your mind's eye with me here. Picture this. You have a gold piece of furniture about three feet by four feet. And on top of it, you have two cherubim made of gold facing one another. Uh, Cherubim is the name for uh, really tremendous angels who are mentioned all throughout the Bible as the guardians to God's throne. So don't think about the pictures of angels that your grandmother had on the walls in her bathroom, all right? Like anytime somebody saw a real cherubim, they were terrified. They were guardians of the throne. And the space directly between the cherubim was empty because they were not to make any images of God. But God symbolizes that this is where his presence will dwell, between the cherubim showing this ark to be a symbol of the heavenly throne. Then inside the ark, Moses was to put the testimony that God will give him. That testimony is the two tablets uh, that, 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 that he wrote the law on, the, the, the tablets that bind the covenant between God and his people. So, so picture, you're picturing this in your mind because there's a problem with this picture. You have a symbol of a holy God sitting on the throne above, and a symbol of a rebellious people whose law they cannot perfectly follow as the covenant demands below. 
So one of the most important questions in the history of the world emerges. How can a holy God dwell amongst an unholy people? The answer is the mercy seat. It was the lid of the ark between God above and the people below. And one day each year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into this most holy place, this inner room, and he would make a sacrifice for sin, pouring the blood of the Lamb onto the mercy seat. And by this blood, God made atonement a substitution for the people's sin, and they were forgiven. This piece of furniture displays the truth that God provides what God demands. What's that picture remind you of? The Ark of the Covenant it points to Jesus who spilled his blood out for sinners, whose death and resurrection provided forgiveness of sin so that by his blood they were covered, redeemed. The Ark of the Covenant tells the story of redemption. It's a powerful image. To take it a step further, I just want to ask you before we move to the next point, do you really believe your sin has been atoned for? For those who have put your faith in Jesus, do, do you believe that His blood covers all of your sin? All of it. There's nothing unaccounted for. That you are fully forgiven. That you are fully free in Christ. And there is no condemnation on you by the blood of Jesus. Do you believe that? Let's keep going. Number two. In this story, the table for bread. God gives the instructions of this table that would be set in the outer room, which is the holy place. And its structure is actually similar to the ark, except that these poles that are on the table for bread can be removed, and the table can be touched. And down in verse 30, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Later in Leviticus, we'll learn that this table would have on it 12 loaves of bread on it at all times. And once a week, the priests would make new loaves and eat the old loaves. But there will never be a time where bread is not on the table. And the reason is plainly known. To represent God's providential care over his people. That these loaves inside the tent represent what is true outside the tent, with manna being provided every morning for the entire nation in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. It's this visual reminder that God is always there. God is always providing, caring, sustaining His people, and they will never look at this table without bread on it. How powerful it is when you know that you have a God who cares, a God who provides, a God who gives you what you need, and so often at just the right time. Church, can you testify to that? Man, I know you can. 
I know that you can look back on your life, however hard it has been, or maybe even hard it is currently, not denying that, but you can look back on your life and see all the times God provided for you. Give us this day our daily bread. God sustains day by day. You know He will. And maybe that is the truth you need to cling to from this morning, that you know He will provide. And while physical provision is given by God, this bread ultimately points to what goes beyond the physical world. That this table for bread shows us above all else that God gives you Himself. Your soul needs the spiritual daily bread to keep going day after day. Keep walking. And there will never be a day where you wake up and God is not upholding you with bread on the table. Jesus, 6, Jesus says in John 6, 35, just in case there was any confusion, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The table for bread points to Jesus. Number three, the golden lampstand. Um, I know some of you are doing the math now. You're like, man, you're just going to preach for an hour today, aren't you? Like, nope, let's go. Um, verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. All right, so this one might be just a little more difficult to picture in your mind, but this is a lampstand right, that would go inside the holy place for a very practical reason. You know what the reason was? It was dark in there. As we'll see, there were four layers of curtains. There was no sunlight getting through, okay? The tabernacle had the ultimate and original blackout curtains. You know those ones that parents of young kids really want this time of year because it's full daylight at 5 a.m. And this lampstand which had ornaments of branches coming out of it to make it look like almost like a tree, was to always keep burning. The priests were to ensure that the light never went out, just like the bread never came off the table. Why? Because when God enters into your life and his presence is in you, he never leaves. God brings us from darkness to light and the light's always on, right? If, 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 isn't the light an indication that someone's home? You, you go and you look at somebody's house, you see lights on the house, you say someone lives there, someone's in there. It's why when people go on vacation, they have the timer set on because they want to make, make people think that they're home. Um, God doesn't need a timer because God is always there. The light's on. And you should know where this is going by now, but again, John chapter 1, verse 4, we read this. In him... Him being Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But that's not all. Jesus coming as the light is the light that shines in his people and through his people to the world. Jesus says to his disciples, You are the light of the world. 
a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men. Make sure it never burns out. Make sure you don't hide it. Church, light up this world. Because when we receive the light of Christ, we become givers of light to a darkened world. All right, let's talk about this for a second. In, in, in just the times that we're in, um, a word that we have been hearing, that we have been discussing a lot over the last couple weeks is the word privilege. Specifically, white privilege. Meaning that there are things that white men and women and children, in a sense, enjoy, have, and obstacles they don't face, not because of anything they're done, but just because they're white. And it's a lightning rod term. Honestly, I don't even know why. It doesn't need to be. It especially does not need to be a controversial term for Christians, that we don't need to deny it. Because the point is that white privilege shouldn't be denied as if it doesn't exist, because it very plainly does. Nor should it make us feel guilty for being white. Here's what white privilege means. It's meant to be acknowledged and deployed in order to help others and stand for the oppressed and make this world a better place. Where there's justice for all. That's privilege. Don't deny it. Don't lament it. Use it for good. And that's the same with the light of Jesus as a gift to us. It's the privilege of receiving God's grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to get it. It was God's grace given to us. We've inherited, inherited Christ. And so the response to that is to not deny it's been given to you and act like you earned your salvation. And it's also not to feel guilty that, that Jesus stood in your place and, and now you have it, now you are in a good spot. It says, the gospel says, don't deny God's grace. Don't lament it, God's grace. Use it for good. Let your light shine into the darkness and give glory to God. The golden lampstand points to Jesus. We're going to pick up the pace in the last three here. Number four, the tent structure, the structure of the curtains and the tent and the tabernacle. God describes how to build the curtains for this tabernacle. Um, again, multi-layered, thick curtains with the cherubim weaved into the curtains to show their purpose. That their purpose is to limit God limit people's entrance into the holy place and into the most holy place. This is not open access for everyone. There was only access given to the priests to go and make the necessary sacrifices to clear the pathway to redemption. Once a year, one person went into the most holy place. And in this way, the ten structure even the curtains pointing to Jesus as the only way to God the Father. The only way to salvation is through Christ. Number five, the bronze altars. They would be placed in the outer courtyard 
So when people entered the courtyard, they would be reminded of the need for sacrifice to enter the presence of God. And yet, it would also be a reminder of the altar in chapter 24 that we saw last week when God confirmed his covenant that blood sprinkled on both the altar and the people bind them together in this covenant, in this forever promise. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, shows us that God's covenant is eternal. And in Christ, it's a new covenant with the same message that he will never leave us nor forsake us. The bronze altar points to Jesus. Number six, the priests. The consecration of the priests, which we uh, will focus more on when we come across these instructions again later on in the book. But Aaron is the first high priest of Israel. And he will be dressed and consecrated as the one who can go into the most holy place one day a year. That he, as the high priest, would be given dominion to make a sacrifice of atonement. And he himself had to be cleansed before he could be in a place to perform a sacrificial cleansing and sacrifice for Israel. Aaron, as the high priest, points to Jesus. To Jesus, who was perfectly clean in himself and who made the sacrifice for the people of God to be forgiven by going to the cross himself. And altogether, these six elements of the tabernacle in chapters 25 through 29, in all their meticulous detail, tell us the story of personal redemption through Jesus Christ. That that would be an amazing end in itself, but I want to finish with one last story that you may not have ever connected before with the tabernacle, and that is number three, the story of cosmic restoration. There are clues in the instructions of the tabernacle that this structure designed by God is a microcosm of the creation of the world. And its innermost sanctuary with the curtains where God's presence would dwell is a microcosm of the Garden of Eden in creation. Just as the creation of the world in Genesis 1 took place over six days, so the construction of the tabernacle had six aspects to it that we just saw. Just as on the sixth day, God appointed Adam to have dominion over the garden, so in the sixth aspect of the tabernacle, God appointed Aaron to have dominion over the most holy place. Just as God rested on the seventh day, so God will conclude the instructions with the seventh aspect, emphasizing the Sabbath in chapter 31, which we'll see next week. Just as the garden contained the tree of life within it, So the tabernacle contained the golden lampstand that had branches like a tree that illuminated the inner room. And just as the cherubim guarded Eden after Adam and Eve sinned and were removed from God's presence in the garden, so now the cherubim guards the Ark of the Covenant where God makes a way to welcome his people back into his presence once again. God is using the tabernacle in the grand story of the Bible of restoring his creation. 
this traveling tabernacle, this big tent that will one day lead to the permanent temple, which will one day lead to the permanent person, Jesus Christ, through whom God will dwell with his people, past, present, and future for all of eternity. The tabernacle tells the grand story of cosmic restoration of his creation through the redemption of sins and the provision of grace in the person of Jesus. This is the story of the Bible. And all that from a divinely designed tent that could fit in this room. There's no building, no structure, no ancient ruin that will come close to the power of the only structure in the world that was designed by God. And in closing, this is how God comes to us. This is how God of the universe dwells within his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I just started with a question. Let me finish with a couple questions. Have you ever felt like God is this distant being that can never be reached? It's not even worth trying. And you're not even sure if you're really interested in the first place to go on a journey to find him. The good news is that he came to you and he's willing to set up camp within you. All you are to do is turn to him and accept the gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ purchased for you. And if you are a believer, maybe in this time for a lot of different reasons, you've just felt distant from God, distant from his people. You feel alone you feel stressed out or you feel angry about what's happening in the world and you just feel like there's no peace in you and there's no peace in this world. Or maybe you're grieving a loss. Maybe you're feeling lost in a major decision. Just know and be encouraged that you do not need to feel like you've got to find your way back to God. That you don't need to perform in a certain way and get your ducks in a row so that he'll accept you once again. Because that's not how you got to him in the first place. The truth is, God never left. He's right there with you. He never left. And he'll be with you through to glory. Let's pray. Father, just pray that we would just be able to pause and reflect, Lord, on a portion of scripture that is often confusing or just not interesting to us, Lord. Allow us to see the story in the details. Allow us to see the story of your redemption plan carried out through history. We thank you for revealing it in your word. We thank you for your spirit opening up the truth of our eyes, of our heart to accept this, Lord. And we pray that your name would be glorified in this so that we would be able to join in with churches across the world in being a light that can shine into the darkness and let it be for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.